Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Let's um, pray once more and we'll dive into God's word. Um, Lord, there's this wonderful irony we have as we uh, come and gather together, and that is that we open up a book made of physical material and paper that is torn and tattered and maybe even colored on or missing pages from. As we sit here and look at it, we encounter not merely molecules of physicality, but we encounter the face of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that as we see clearly today, that we, like the disciples, have moments of stunning clarity regarding who you are. We ask that it changes the way we live and work, the way we hope, pray, and most importantly, the way we seek you for all of life. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you haven't yet opened up your Bibles, you could do so to Luke chapter 9. And as you guys are getting there, um, I remember watching uh, a couple episodes of a show that aired, I don't know if it's still on, uh, called Undercover Boss. And that show sounded exactly like what it was. A president or CEO of a company would disguise himself as an ordinary Joe and he'd go work a few shifts with the common worker. And there's always this moment in the shows, that, at least the ones I saw, uh, where some employee opened up and got really intimate with this stranger uh, that was there and talked about how dire their situation was, how seemingly mismanaged and difficult work was, how they were pouring themselves out, how things were difficult, perhaps even being taken advantage of. And then this moment came, perhaps days later, where this person they were pouring their complaints and and uh, woes to reveal themselves as the president and CEO, and they sit down with this person, they say that they're going to pledge to do what's necessary to make these things right, to actually make an impact on the day-to-day life of this individual. And the appeal of the show highlights something that we're going to see played out today in the story that was just read for us by Devin in Luke chapter 9, and that is this, that our understanding of what someone is able to do is always limited by who we think that person is. Our understanding of what we think that person is able to do is always limited by who we think that person is. If that employee understood who it was they were talking to, they would change their tone. Maybe perhaps they'd even out of fear curb their honesty. But in speaking, it wouldn't be simply speaking to someone who was unable to do something. They would expect results. They would expect their authority and their power to be used to right what was wrong. Speaking to someone who has power and authority changes what we expect. And what we've seen so far through Luke's gospel is that though Jesus is fully God, he really was robed in flesh. This was no disguise though. He really was fully human. He was fully God and fully man. He was hardly undercover. It's hard to be undercover when your birth is prophesied for thousands of years. It's hard to be undercover when you're born, angels appear in a field and proclaim Unto you this day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's hard to be undercover wherever you go, miracles and crowds follow. It's hard to be undercover when you're baptized and God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. And yet despite the clarity and proclamation of who Jesus was, there was a problem with people's experience of who Jesus was. People didn't actually know. 
They wrestled with the question of who is this Jesus and therefore what do I expect from him? And I don't know if you've walked with Jesus for years, if you're new to trying to understand who Jesus is and what he's done, maybe you've had those similar experiences. You realize there's something that ought to drive you to Jesus. There are crowds following him. There are books written about him. He seems to be a historically significant figure. Maybe even you claim that Jesus is the son of God. Maybe he's even to you the savior. But what does that actually mean when you go to him? What does it change in regards to your day-to-day experience? This next section we're entering into, into the book of Luke, includes stories of crowds, kings, and disciples all wrestling with their experience with Jesus as they are all individually grappling with the question of identity. Who is he? And today, what we just read is Luke kind of interweaving two stories about God's providential provision and two questions regarding Jesus' identity. And in doing this, he's actually making clear our main point today, which is this. When we see God's provision in Jesus as the Christ, we can trust Jesus' provision in all of life. To put it simply, we're going to see over the next couple weeks how our understanding of Jesus directly affects our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Your view of Jesus, your worship of Jesus, and as we'll see today, your life and ability to be a disciple of Jesus is always limited by your own perception of Jesus's identity, who Jesus is to you. And that's not relative. There is a right idea of who who Jesus is, and we're going to see that today. And that's going to be answered in two parts in our text. First, in Luke 9, 1 through 9, we're going to see a power that raises questions. And then in verses 10 through 20, we're going to see provision that gives answers. Let's begin by reading the first portion of our text today, which are the first six verses of Luke chapter 9. It says this, And he, that's Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we've seen some pretty significant portraits of Jesus's power and authority over the forces of the world, over the forces of the flesh, and over the forces of the devil. But now the scene is shifting from Jesus as he begins to share some of his power and authority with these 12 men. And these men who are sent out are 12 distinct men who have been handpicked by Jesus all the way back, if you remember, in Luke chapter 6. Jesus calls these men from the disciples. There's this broader group of disciples. Anyone who follows Jesus is a disciple of Jesus. But from that group of disciples, he calls these 12 men whom he calls apostles. And we actually see in verse 2, Jesus sends them out. And that Greek word sent out is apostelline. And so that's where we get the word apostles. These are men specially selected by Jesus and sent out by Jesus, playing a unique role in his ministry 
and a unique role in the establishment of the church. We've already seen Jesus choose these men in Luke chapter 6. But now for the first time, we're seeing Jesus commission and empower these men for ministry. And in this, we encounter our first point this morning. Here we see a power that raises questions. Jesus displays his power when he gives these men three things. He gives them power, he gives them purpose, and he gives them provision. We see the power in Luke 9.1 where Luke says this, he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And so, so far in the book of Luke, we've seen it's only Jesus who's been able to do any of these things. And now Jesus, the one who's shown power over demons and power over the flesh, is is giving a little bit of that power and a little bit of that authority to these apostles. And this is significant in terms of the history of the church. You and I probably don't have this same ability today because you and I aren't apostles. And this will become clear as we work through this text. But what's important to note here is that these disciples were given power. They didn't discover it. They didn't pass a test or get certified in it. They didn't earn it. It was given to them. This power they had is not innate to the disciples. It was power that belonged to Jesus. And yet we see this beautiful thing. As Jesus gives some of his power, Jesus himself is not depleted. Jesus, out of his infinite mystery of being fully God and fully man, gives some of his power to completely finite men. And that changes seemingly everything. Perhaps you've had the experience of seeing a seven-year-old puff out their chest, their countenance change as they get to march into a room and say, Mom said. Right? In that moment, there is no force that could stop them from their mission. Why? Because they have the authority of mom. And despite all of the robusto that goes into their demeanor, we know that it is not their authority. It is not their power. It is dependent upon their mom. And yet this power that was given to them by Jesus dependent upon Jesus and sourced in Jesus was power given for a distinct purpose. We see that purpose, if you have your Bible open, in Luke chapter 2, where he says, he gave them this and sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, this is really important. All of the power they were given, all of the wonders they were going to work, all of the healings they were going to display were to show, confirm, validate, and proclaim the message of the kingdom of God and the reality that it had drawn near. In other words, the miracles of the apostles served the message of the kingdom of God. Imagine if you walk into a grocery store and there's a man hanging out outside. He says, hey, Before you go in, I want to tell you that inflation is stopping. That someone has come to do something about this. I mean, we're in midterms. We hear promises like this all the time. We might be interested, maybe even optimistic. But what if he said, come with me? And he took you inside the grocery store. And every item that individual touched miraculously dropped in price right before your eyes. That miracle 
would drive you not to be amazed at this pork, which is now $1.88 a pound at Winco, but it would cause you to wonder more about what this man is talking about. The what, the who, the why, the message becomes adorned by the miracle. The miracle validates it and pushes us further towards it. The miracles of the apostles and the miracles we see in the book of Acts were given as proof and validation that this kingdom was coming, that it was really true. And yet all of those miracles are meant to support the greater miracle, which is the message of the kingdom of God. We already witnessed this where Jesus himself showed how miracles and healing fit in uh, priority with the preaching of the gospel. In Luke chapter 4, the crowds are trying to keep Jesus there, and Jesus says, I cannot stay here and heal. And what does he say? He says this in Luke 4, 43 and 44. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So not only did Jesus give his disciples power, miraculous, supernatural power, but he gave it to them for the purpose of preaching as the first missionaries in this era. In fact, what we see here is that Jesus is actually the first apostle. For this purpose, he was sent. He was apostoline. And now these disciples are meant to take the miracles and the message of Jesus out even broader, which looked like everything in service to the preaching of this message. They were to share the good news of the kingdom of God. And lastly, not only did they receive power and purpose, but Jesus granted them provision. Look back at verses three through six. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread. If you're a, a, a highlighter in your Bible, go ahead and circle that word. For some reason, I feel like that's going to be important for us later on, but who knows. Nor money, and do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So Jesus says, pack nothing, be sent, travel the light. Don't bring any bread, don't bring an extra tunic. Two tunics is too many tunics. Don't bring a bag, and there will be times where towns will not accept you. But I will always provide for your town that will. And when you go there, and someone opens up their house, stay with them. Don't depart there. You don't have to be like a, a charlatan trying to go from house to house disgu disguising your identity as if they're going to catch on. Stay with that family. Stay in that home as long as they will provide for you and do this work of preaching and healing. They were going to be welcomed by hospitality empowered by Jesus himself. And I wonder how the disciples felt at this commission. It's been a short amount of time still as they've been walking with Jesus in the book of Luke. And Jesus says, I want you to go to a people you, don't not, you do not know preaching a gospel of a kingdom which is not yours, and doing miracles which humans are unable to do. But what happens? In verse 6, they go to the towns. They went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing. Jesus wasn't blowing smoke. I could stand here today and say, I give you power and authority to heal and preach the gospel. But Jesus is actually able to back that up with something. 
Jesus is able to give them the power to do just this. He's not bluffing. He really gave them those things. He really provided for them everything, just as he said he would. And so as these men go around doing powerful things, it's noticed by a powerful man who begins to ask a powerful question. Look at Luke 9, verses 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And so we've already been introduced to a Herod back in the birth narrative. This is, that was Herod the Great. This is one of Herod's sons. This is Herod the Tetrarch. And one thing we know about the family of Herods, historically speaking, is that they were paranoid and power-hungry at every turn. Earlier in Luke, this same Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, beheaded John. Why? Because this Herod thought he could take whatever he wanted, and he desired his brother's wife as his wife. So he was going to take her. And John the Baptist said, probably don't. And John didn't like, or Herod didn't like that. And so Herod, having the power, just killed John. Power gets things done in this world. And so Herod, after beheading John, felt like he had taken off at the source this power that seemed to make him uncomfortable. He had squelched any of this long prophesied Messiah business, this king, which could maybe rival his own kingdom. But now there's a sort of inquisitive fear that seems to sweep over him, right? Not only is there power being displayed, which he cannot control, but it's power regarding a kingdom, a sphere of influence in which he was, in his own mind, the top dog. And more than that, it's no longer one rogue guy wandering around the sticks of northern Galilee, but there's 12 of them. They're multiplying. Things are quickly getting out of hand in his area, and people have begun to wonder, who is this? Is this John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is this The prophet Elijah come back to visit his people. Another prophet raised from the dead. And Herod asks himself this question in verse 9. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Luke often gives us these kind of biographical glimpses into his characters. And in part, that's because he's a good storyteller and he's letting us know what is going on. But there's actually a bigger reason why he does this, and it's so that you might ask yourself those same questions. When Mary marveled at the birth of Jesus, it's to say, but do you marvel? Do you consider these things in your heart? And here Herod says, John I know. John I could control. John I can deal with. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And the question is for you. Who is this Jesus about what you hear these things. You see, it's possible for us to know many things surrounding Jesus. We can know the church. We can know sound doctrine. We can know community. We can know the worship songs. But do you know the one who is behind it all? Do you have clarity on who this Jesus is? Now be careful how you answer that question. Because these disciples who have been wandering with Jesus are the ones who are closest to him, and yet they don't even have a clear understanding of who Jesus is. 
but Jesus is going to help them, and Jesus will help you. And this is our second point this morning. Here we see provision that gives answers. Jesus' power is raising questions all around, but now we're going to see a special provision which gives an answer. Would you read with me Luke 9, verses 10 through 17? On their return, that's the the return of the 12 from their missionary journeys, the apostles told him, that's Jesus, all they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find some lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. And he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So there are four books in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those books are called Gospels, not because there's four different Gospels, four different good newses, take your pick, but because all of these men give a unique perspective of Jesus' ministry. They all describe the same good news. But this miraculous feeding of Jesus is one of the rare events that is included in all four of those Gospels. In other words, this should be highlighted in all of our Bibles. God wants us to see something here. And Luke has chosen to share with us this account surrounded by context, which kind of like a pair of binoculars with that little adjuster is meant to acutely focus us to know why this is so significant. Consider the context Luke gives us in verses 10 and 11. Here, 12 apostles return from their first missionary journey, and like giddy children, they begin to describe to Jesus everything they saw, everything they did. We're going to see this again in a couple weeks, which will actually, for us, be a long time because we have some mini-series coming up. When Jesus sends out 72, they get super excited about everything that's going on. And so they begin to tell Jesus, but much like when your kid comes home from an amusement park, all of that excitement leads to crashing nap times. And so Jesus takes his disciples from their journey and he withdraws to Bethsaida. Mark tells us he did so because they were tired. Him and his disciples were going to rest. But the crowds hear about it. The crowds crash their little retreat, and Jesus did what, did what Jesus does. He welcomed them. He brought them in. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. He healed those who had need. In other words, Jesus himself continues the ministry that he invited the disciples into. The gospel was preached, and people were healed. Even when Jesus and his disciples are seemingly weary, Jesus is not too weary to welcome those who come to him. But it was wearisome to the disciples. Luke tells us the day begins to wear away. Here we are. It's August. It's hot. It rained last night, which means all of us enjoyed that wonderful reprieve from the heat. But guess what? Today it's going to be hot and humid. Surprise! We know what it's like for the day to wear on. Remember, geographically, 
We are in the Middle East. They are in a desert. The sun is hot and high in the sky in the heat of the day. And these tired disciples look at a crowd which included 5,000 men, just counting the men. That's not women and children. So scholars say probably between 10,000 to 20,000. If it's our church and there's 5,000 men, there's probably like 70,000 children in this place. And so there's a vast amount of people in this crowd. And no one is prepared or equipped to feed all these people. They do not have, that word we circled, enough bread. The disciples just did ministry. They know what it's like to be in want, but remember where they did ministry? In villages and in towns where people provided for them by going to their local Kroger market and getting something and bringing it back and sharing it with the disciples. But where are they now? We already see this in verse 12. We are here, Jesus, in a desolate place. There is nothing to provide for these people. So they come up with this genius idea. Like, what if we tell Jesus to just send the crowds away? And they could go back to the sources. They could go to the villages. They could go to the countrysides. They could get shade from the heat and they could get food for their stomach. And so they come and they share this brilliant plan with Jesus. And Jesus says something so profoundly Jesus-y. He says, you give them something to eat. And that's the day you and I quit being disciples. <laughs> and it's kind of with this absolute resolve that they, that is the whole 12, collectively turn to Jesus and they say, all we have are five, lish, five fish and two loaves. And those are just the two most common staples of this day. It's as if we were out in a crowd of 10 to 20,000 people and someone says, we've got five PBJs and two protein bars. What do you want to do with this? What are we supposed to do? Do you want us to go buy food? And here we see how quickly and how easily we misremember truths about ourselves and truths about Jesus. For all of us, I'm sure, would have responded in a similar way. The disciples were tired. They had just done real ministry. They're coming back. They're looking forward to the retreat. They're wandering around a hot countryside from city to city, and now they give up a portion of their vacation for Jesus to welcome and to preach and to heal and it's hot, and there's nothing for the people to eat. What would you say? But again, notice how Luke is building up this context here. Let's pay attention to the text. In verse 1, Jesus sends out these 12 with power and authority to heal and to preach. In verse 6, they go out preaching and healing everywhere. News of their miracles, we see in verses 7 through 9, reaches even Herod's palace down in Jerusalem. They come back to Jesus in verse 10 and they tell Jesus all that they had done. All of the power, all of the authority, all of the provision is eagerly shared with the one who gave it. They had his might and his message even when they were apart from Jesus. And less than a day later, they are with Jesus in a barren place under a hot sun and they find themselves utterly hopeless. Why because they can't do anything. Did you notice all of their we statements in this text? We are in a desolate place. We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Are we to go buy food for all these people? How easy is it for us to misremember and misplace identity and provision? You see, at the beginning, as these disciples went out, I'm sure 
in verses one through six, that the astounding nature of their miracles caused them to be keenly aware that this was not themselves. No one looked at Barabbas and was like, yeah, we saw that the whole time. He was totally capable of doing that. (laughs) That was only Jesus doing those things and his disciples. When they went into a new town they'd never been to and doors opened up and tables were filled by the hospitality of the people, they understood that Jesus went before them and opened hearts and homes so that the mission of the gospel would go forward. But over time, what happens? They begin to think that this power was intrinsic to them. They began to think that it was the wealth and the privilege of the towns which caused their tables to be full. And here they were in the desert. Jesus told them to bring no bread in a town or without a town to provide. And they wonder, what do we do? If we have an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is, we will always struggle with assuming that he is just like us and we are just like him. There was nothing the disciples could do here. Therefore, there was nothing Jesus could do here. Do you see how that logic worked in their minds? How often we do that? I can't do anything here. Therefore, Jesus cannot do anything here. They didn't have, were they to go by, but since when was this ministry contingent upon them? Imagine if my kids came to me Every dad knows the wonderful crowning achievement of being able to open cans and bottles that no one else can. They come to me, they've got friends in the backyard, and they say, Dad, we want to have something that's in a can. We don't drink soda, but let's call it soda. And so they come to me, and they can't open it. And so I open it, and I I crack the seal, I put the cap back on, they go to their friends, and they share that with their friends in their backyard. Now imagine if that night we gather around the dinner table, and because we're wildly unhealthy, we're going to have soda again. And there on the table is this unopened bottle of soda. And my kids try to open it, and they can't. And despair rushes over the whole table. And they say, what are we going to do? No one can open the bottle. I can't do it. I can't open it. We would see how silly that is, because they could never open it. That's what I was there for. I was the one who opened it for them earlier. I would be the one who opened it for them again. But so often when, like this, when God gives us gifts of provision, we begin to think those gifts were contingent upon us, upon our circumstances, and upon our power, and not the God who stands above all of that and provides in the midst of it. There will be times where following Jesus leads you to desolate places under high heat, and we will constantly be frustrated and hopeless unless we're able to see the identity of the one who sits there with us. You see, in the book of Hosea, God paints this stunning live-action parable to describe Israel's unfaithfulness to himself. In chapter 2, he talks about how Israel pursued other lovers, pursued other men, because they thought those men would bring them provision that they seem to no longer have. It was as if Israel once had a full pantry, and now it's not there. It's bleak. It's hot. There is no bread. And so they say, well, I'm going to go somewhere where I can get it. I'm going to go to someone who could give it. 
and look at how this is described in Hosea 2, the second part of verse 5. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Read, my villages and my countrysides, which give me shelter and food. But look at what God says was their true reality in verses 7 and 8. She, that's Israel, shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I, her faithful husband, who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold. Israel wanted security. Israel wanted wealth. Israel wanted food. And they looked at that desolate place and said, I am here because my husband cannot provide. But instead, it was barren because they were running from the God who did provide. They didn't lack security because of their husband, but because they left their husband. And here, what the disciples were willing to accept with zeal apart from Jesus in verses one through six, they find themselves doubting in the desert with Jesus, which shows how easy it is to misplace our trust, to put our hope in the gifts and not the giver, to put our hope in what is provided and not the provider. But look at what happens. And here's where I love the sovereignty of God. So much so we make it part of our church name. Look at the beauty of this. Luke 9 verses 14 through 17. For there are about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Of all the mic drops in scripture, this one bangs the loudest. (laughs) Have you ever hosted? Devin was talking about hosting our missions night next week. You should all come. You know how hard it is to have just the right amount of food. That is enough food where you don't run out, but also enough food that your family isn't eating the same thing for the next two weeks. And here, Jesus feeds 10 to 20,000 people. He sends the disciples to go out and to gather the broken pieces. And they come back with no more, no less than 12 doggy bags of bread. And now this isn't in scripture. This is me, you know, taking some artistic liberty here. But I imagine that after Jesus stood there breaking bread, Again, and 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 again. He's watching his disciples, and he's going to go gather the pieces, go get the crumbs. And they each come back, these ones who said, we don't have food. And they all have food, not only enough to eat in that moment and be satisfied, but they have food to be satisfied tomorrow. And I bet Jesus was just like, huh, weird. Isn't that just Wow, that is crazy. (laughs) But this provision is this jarring moment that leads to clarity. And this springboards into Luke's next scene here, where we see the main point not only of this passage, but arguably of the whole book of Luke. Pay attention to verses 18 and 20. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples, 
as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, the Christ of God. So Luke asks his disciples about his identity, and at first we think, oh no, we've heard all these names before. Are they just the same as the people rumoring, as Herod hearing in his palace? But then he asks them a more pointed question. Not who do they think I am. Not who do your parents think I am. Not who does culture say I am. Not who does your president say that I am. Who do you think that I am? And Peter answers the four most important words of his life, the Christ of God. For us, hearing the word Christ might be Jesus' last name. It might be perhaps a title, but it was more than that. It was a role. To be a Christ of God was to be the Hebrew anointed of God. It was to be the Hebrew idea of the Messiah of God. And so the Hebrew word for Christ, uh, Greek is building off the Hebrew of the Old Testament. And so it's the Greek word for the Hebrew word anointed. And we see this back in Psalm 2. And I want you guys to pay attention to this. Look at what it says. God says this, the kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, against his anointed saying, and then he continues here. But now look what follows in verse six. What does God say to these kings who have taken their place against the anointed? He says this, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Why is this so important? Because we see the anointed Christ of God is also God's king. The Messiah is the king who has the keys to the kingdom. And this is something where we have to understand the unique historical moment this is in the book of Luke. It wasn't until this point, Luke 9 verse 20, where for the disciples, it finally clicked that Jesus was God's anointed king. But do you remember what they had been doing? They had been going through the countryside preaching. Preaching what? The good news we see in verse six of the kingdom of God. To proclaim the kingdom of God was to preach good news. It was to use Luke's favorite word. They were gospeling. They were good newsing. And yet they still didn't see who Jesus was. And this shows us just how good the kingdom of God is. Everyone wants it. It is compelling. It was good news about a kingdom and crowds flocked to it. It was the good news that the presence of God was drawing so near to his people that all of the benefits of God were the present reality of the people. And this is where the miracles matter. They displayed the nature of that kingdom. No one was hungry in the kingdom. No one was sick in the kingdom. No one was fearful in the kingdom. No one wrestled with evil in the kingdom. No one worried about the economy in the kingdom. No one begged in the kingdom. No one was homeless in the kingdom. There were no tears in the kingdom. There were no sorrows in the kingdom. There was no death in the kingdom. The heart of this kingdom is at the hope of what is it? Every promise from corporate America. It's at the hope of what is it? Every promise of a political ad, a place where everything is as it should be. And here we see the most significant aspect of the kingdom. Here we see the king. A kingdom without a king is nothing at all. But here's the good news. 
Here's the king who gets us there. Here's the proof and promise of God's provision for everything because Jesus is the Christ. And in that moment, everything clicked for Peter. He had seen bread multiplied before in the Old Testament. When God brought his people out of Egypt and they whined and grumbled because they were in a desolate place and there was no bread and God provided manna for the people to take and to be provided. And here God did not send manna. Here God sent the Messiah, the one who broke bread for them, the one who would be broken on a cross as the provision we need, not to fill our stomachs, but to absolve our sins, to take away the greatest enemy that stood against us. You will be hungry repeatedly, but you will die once on account of your sins. But here is the Christ. Here is the provision of the one who takes what is broken, restores it in himself, and gets us the kingdom. Here is the hope that all who take the Christ have the provision of God. And the beautiful thing here is all of this came for Peter as Peter saw Jesus praying. Jesus praying to God the Father through the Spirit and knowing what we've just seen in Luke. Here is the one, Jesus. If Jesus has the power to calm the seas, if Jesus has the power to rebuke Satan, if Jesus has the power to call the dead to life and feed all who come to him, and yet this Jesus still exists in desperate reliance on the Father and the Spirit, how much more do we as mere humans cling in desperate reliance to God's provision of the Christ? Here is your provision. Here is the promise where God has taken care of you on the cross and will take care of you in the kingdom. If God has sent Christ, then we know God will provide in the desert. Look at how Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God has provided the Christ, then no matter how hot it might seem, no matter how bleak the odds might be, for those who sit with Jesus, we know we sit with the one who could do something about it. And there's two points of application we could take away from this. First, to those who desire to see Jesus, identity matters. Herod had all the resources to see him, but it was beggars who found him. Do not mistake interested curiosity with clarity on Jesus' identity. Herod couldn't find it, but those with a need did. Why? Because Jesus provides not to those who have an abundance, but to those who have a weakness, to those who have a need. And you might look and say, well, I'm pretty good, but what about our world? If we're sober enough to look at our world, don't we see a need? No one looks and says, this is as good as it gets. Don't we long for a kingdom? Don't we long for an experience? Don't we seek to see what is wrong punished, what is right protected, and what is wounded restored? That's a longing for the kingdom. And that shows you the problem. You cannot be there because you are not right 
in here. We are separated from the kingdom because our hearts are at odds with the king. You, by nature of your imperfections, cannot be in the perfect kingdom because you ruin it. Because we corrupt it. Because we see this perfect thing and our sin taints it. But here is our memory verse this week. Here is the good news of the gospel. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and in him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or on heaven. By what? By making peace by the blood of the cross. Here is the Messiah who brings peace peace. Here is the king who opens the gates of the kingdom so you could come and be provided for. So come to him in your need, find his provision, and be satisfied. There are two places we need to look in this life. We need to look back at the cross and see that it is only there Christ has provided for what we need. But then we need to look forward to the kingdom in hope that one day we will not only get what we need, but we will get everything we've ever wanted, and it's only here. Come and know this Christ. But secondly, for anyone who is a follower of Jesus, the Christ of God, you too are a disciple. We might not be apostles, but we are all disciples. And we are all sent out by Jesus with the good news of his gospel. We are all equipped for ministry. And here we see the hard truth. As you leave here today, I hope you meet some other people. I would encourage you to. And as you meet people, you know the distinct drama of walking through life with other people. It's often hard. There'll be times where caring for others and growing in your own faith might seem insurmountable. The disciples themselves were hungry, hot, and tired, but at the end, they had leftovers for tomorrow. Everything Jesus asks of you for the work of mission, he also provides for you. I love the picture of Jesus breaking this, and what did he do? He gave it to his disciples, and his disciples gave it to others. Jesus has been your provision for discipleship and evangelism. He doesn't call you to offer anything which you yourself has not received from Jesus. And if Jesus has given you himself, he has given you everything for ministry. If you have been following Jesus for 15 minutes, you have something to give to others. And Jesus stands there with you. So trust him when you're tired. Labor on. There will be times where it seems you cannot proceed in the call to love others and glorify God. But look to Jesus and you will find his hand open with exactly what you need for that moment. You will find him faithful at every turn. Peter is the one who uttered this moment of clarity. And decades later, Peter says this as our concluding truth today. May this encourage you from 1 Peter 4, verses 9 through 11. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What Peter affirms in this text is nothing more than what he witnessed in the desert. That Christ gives us what we need to be his disciples and to have enough even for tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you be gracious to us as we seek to fulfill the ministry you've entrusted to us. Lord, help us to see with clarity, the identity 
of you as the Christ of God, that you are our chief provision. And on account of that, whether we sit apart from you in villages or whether we sit with you in a desert, that as long as we have faith in you, we have provision for you have atoned for our sins and you have promised us a kingdom. Lord, I pray that we are able then to go and to continue to preach and continue to show people the wonderful good news of God's provision in Jesus. We pray this for your name. Amen.